Well, hello and welcome to my Dilorama's Top Picks podcast. I'm Abla Kanslaft, film programmer, journalist and researcher with my co-host Coco Green, armchair critic and aspiring academic. In Top Picks, we discuss marginalisation, resistance and some of the isms in drama, documentary, mystery and independent films and series. Now, it's in 11th year, My Die Champions independent film and its use as a platform for underrepresented and often ignored voices. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at My Dialorama. And if you like what we do, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Short link is mydie.link slash Apple or Spotify at mydie.link slash Spotify. And support us with either a one-time or monthly donation at mydie.link slash donate. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at mydie.link slash subscribe. Well, we're good to go now. We're back after quite a long break. So thanks, everyone, uh, for bearing with us. The main reason is that I've um, I've had a baby. So um, that's uh, that was six weeks ago. I was still pretty much working for the Clermont-Ferrand Film Festival throughout. So one of the things um, I'd like to quickly mention is that the festival has just now ended and it was a huge success as usual. Not as many meets and greets and in public um in uh, person uh, parties as the usual um, uh, as the previous years uh, but very happily restrictions were lifted very shortly before the festival so British filmmakers were able to go and filmmakers from from other countries as well so check out the winners we are posting interviews with all the selected filmmakers on my dialorama as we speak we are very, very happy to come back with a guest, Akua from British Blacklist. So I'll uh, let you introduce yourself, Akua, and tell us a bit more about your, your work. Hi, my name is Akua Jamfi. Um, welcome back, guys. Uh, my, na- um, my name, I run a platform called the British Blacklist, which is a media platform that celebrates the talents of UK, primarily UK-based black creatives who work across screen, stage, literature and sound. And I also have a database called the Blacklisted Database, which is about to be relaunched. Um, Again, showcasing the work that um, black creatives in the UK do. Again, also in the arts. And um, yeah, I do a bit of this and a bit of that in the creative space. I I, I always respond better to direct questions because I could go on for hours. So please ask away. Fantastic. We are going to discuss a little bit uh, British Blacklist. I'd like to uh, talk a bit more about your work and then we'll move on to our main focus of uh, this podcast, of this podcast episode, I should say. First of all, uh, Akua, is there anything you'd like to flag, any films or documentaries or series that you've seen recently or that are coming up or any festivals that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Um, I feel like I've watched that because I always have to watch stuff. So what I'm really enjoying and it's causing a bit of a debate is the Bel Air, the Bel Air remix, I should say, the reboot of the Fresh Prince yes. of Bel Air. But I, I don't know, I, you know, because there's been so much dissension about it. But I guess it's just because people are so used to the classic and have got, you know, fond. I've got fond memories of the series. It raised me. I, you know, can say episodes word for word, but. I think what they've done with this reboot is so clever. Um, I love the way they've adapted the story to, into drama. And it's a little bit of melodrama. It's a bit, I, I've been calling it the Black 90210. It gives me those type of vibes, um, both the original, I'm old enough to remember the original 90210 series and the reboot 90210 series. 
And I think Fresh Prince, the, or I should say Bel Air, the new version, really sits nicely alongside those type of series, YA young people series that got a bit of an adult storyline, young people storyline, the whole family can kind of watch it and get what they need from it. And I just think the characterizations are brilliant. The adaptation of each character is, is I don't know, I, I'm just really enamored by it. I just think it's so good. So that's something I really love. Um, and unfortunately, I think a few of the things, the other things I've seen are all under embargo and preview. I get a lot of preview screenings. And I've just had to run a list of things. I'm like, oh, I don't think I can talk about those things just yet. But that's where I'm at at the moment with my watchy stuff. I mean, of course, sorry, Inventing Anna, The Tinder Swindler. Mm -hmm. It's been, you know, because I do a podcast called Your Aunties Could Never, where we're a bit more topical. Yeah. Um, so those, of course, talking and just incre incredulous about how people get away with such craziness in this world. Well, I think we'll have to have you back to talk about Fresh Prince because I've not watched it. I'm reluctant because I, I'm of two minds of it. On the one hand, I love soap operas and I like drama. Then on the other hand, given politically where black people are in the racial wealth divide, should we be depicting that kind of thing that doesn't exist? Like, I think what you said was apt, right, of black 90210, but since that doesn't exist, should we be depicting that? And should we be depicting something more realistic? Um, so my best friend said that she does really like it. So I am going to watch it. I haven't yet. So I would love, you know, we could have another discussion once um, Avalon and I have had a chance to see it. Number one, right? Like if, if we were look, to look at the first Fresh Prince, right? Like there's no way a professional couple could afford a mansion and a butler, right? That just, and private children in private school, like that's not possible. But then also black people just don't live in those neighborhoods unless, you know, you are a Quincy Jones and how many Quincy Joneses are running around, right? So that's what I mean by it doesn't exist. Or even that idea that you can have a neighborhood. I mean, and I don't think they depict that in the show. I've not watched it, but I'm assuming like the first Fresh Prince, they did live amongst white people. So I'm assuming they're doing the same thing. But even that concept, I think people do believe like, oh, you've got these wealthy black neighborhoods and no, it just, it doesn't exist. Don't they make a point of, of them being the only black family in the neighborhood in the first um, iteration? Well, that's what I'm saying. I, that's why I don't know. But I, I think right. uh, when you have those sort of beliefs swirling around. Um, but, you know, I, I do like the drama, like I said. I like soap operas. And I do like things, because even soap operas, I know that soap operas in the U.S. are different from the U.K. But in the U.S., everybody's rich. They find a way to make everybody have money, which is extremely <laughs> unrealistic. So that's why I'm like, oh, well, I guess black people can do it too. But then if we think about what could be the consequences for that in real life, because I appreciate fantasy, but I wonder if the general audience can distinguish between fantasy and what what's a reality. Oh, I so it's so interesting. I'm, I'm seeing your mouth open because I've never questioned, I never questioned the believability, if that's a word, of these guys living in this space because... We are also, especially from the UK, there's a very big romanticism, romanticizing of the America of American culture, um, Black American culture, and we, you know, we, I grew up with cribs, I grew up with the affluence and the perceived affluence. So, Fresh Prince and Cosby Show and the such didn't seem impossible. And watching this, I, I, I not once has it crossed my mind. That this is that, that this is possibly implausible. I literally thought, okay, this is fine. This can happen. They're rich. I like. I mean, again, no spoilers. I like the juxtaposition because with, with it being a drama, there's a bit more depth into the two worlds colliding. Where Will's from Philly, 
from the hood and come into this space. But the fact that the banks have bank, I haven't even watched it with that skewed perception because I just believe that they live there. I really genuinely. Oh, I, think, I love it. Bank have banks. I've never heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> See, we pick up the colloquialisms that we, we, we get it over here because um, we literally grew up from a lot, you know, British black culture is becoming more globalized now in more recent times. But there was, you know, I was born in the 70s, the time that I know my culture, though we had a British black movement in the UK, everything I consumed was African-American, black American, um, because we had a lack of it over here. So I was just about to say that I think that's what British blacklist addresses, right? Like the, the fact of the matter is it is all about you know, black Americans do become representative of black culture because that American media is global, right? So I think that people, you know, you don't have a reason to question in, in, unless you live it. But even then, even then, I think because, you know, the vast majority of black people aren't professionals, right? They don't go to higher education. They also don't question it. Why would they? Because if TV is telling them that's what it looks, you know, what it is, and they don't experience it personally, why would you question but I think that's something, you know, it, it's coming more to the fore with the conversations around the racial wealth divide and when did it start and reparations and just, I don't think people are really aware about how wealthless black people are. So, I mean, the Cosby show was real in a sense like, yeah, you do have professional black couples, but it just wasn't real in terms of the wealth that they have. So no, absolutely, you can have that, it, it'd be rare but they'd, they'd have financial problems because, because everything is privatized and very expensive. Um, and that's the other thing I think in the UK too, because I did live in the UK for a few years. So coming there, back, you do have, well, we'll, we'll see, we'll see waiting <laughs> to hear back. We'll, that, that's still up in the air, but it is the, the, the kind of racial wealth divide doesn't exist and the sort of wealthlessness doesn't exist. And I think you, it is taken for common sense, I think, in the UK, even the um, professionals and home ownership, which doesn't really exist for black people here in the same way, in this day and age, like it was more true in, uh, you know, 20 years ago, but not, you know, not so much. I think it's similar today. in the UK, because I think, you know, we had, we have the wealth divide over here and the, the, the affluence of black folks is not, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to reel off a list of moneyed British black folk that I could possibly mention black Americans who I perceive are millionaires, billionaires and stuff like that. But from, even if it is just sit, literally sitting in um, entertainment, but in the UK, it's not as believable. Like if they, you know, a, a, a Bel Air in the UK um, wouldn't possibly would be, would be more fantastical than Bel Air as, as it's set because we don't have that visual of um, the, the richest people we have kind of are the footballers, mm -hmm. the soccer players. We don't really have, yeah, no. Cause I think even in America, in America we look to the, the black generational wealth people and they, even if they're few and far between. I, and one comes to mind, I'm not very learned but about these things, but maybe the Bonner family and stuff like that. So I don't know. Oh, when I went, meant wealth, I didn't mean, you know, affluent like millionaires. I meant in terms of, so if there's a chart and it's, it's actually old because I used it for my research project. And it's 10 years old. It hasn't been re redone, but it's by Rawlinson. And she breaks down in terms of class and race, the average wealth of families. And it comes from home ownership, right? And so that's what I mean doesn't exist in the UK. So your, your Mead 
you're not you yeah you're mean no you're median sorry your median black family has seventeen hundred dollars of wealth which which we know is nothing it might as well be zero it's not zero but it might as well be zero and that's what i'm saying is you don't have because you do have home ownership but that's because the racial system worked differently you don't have you didn't have like you know the perfect example actually i'm sure you saw well i'm not sure you saw but i'm guessing you saw did you see um what was the play small island did you check out the yes, play? check out yes. the play okay yes. okay so i saw that and to me i'm like this is exactly the issue right because we all like in the end they move to a house that their friend inherited from his uncle and that's what couldn't happen in the u.s for a black person like you couldn't inherit property you couldn't move to a place just because you had the money to do it and frankly you can't even do it now really so that's the difference so in terms of being able to you know if you get that job which you know i'm not saying there isn't discrimination or racism you know there is institutional racism but if you get that job is someone going to stop and you know, you're not allowed to buy a home. You're not allowed to send your kids to school. Like that's the kind of like the U.S. has a different racial system, is what I'm getting at. So, so it's like that. So when you look at the averages of Black families, even working class who do have homes, they do have a home ownership that just doesn't exist. Which, and I'm just saying that's one thing that contributes to the wealthlessness. I mean, there is a breakdown of all the things that contribute to the racial wealth divide, and a lot of that is intergenerational and historical in a sense where you know you that character in Small Island could own a home and that just couldn't happen in the U.S. In the US. Oh, okay. So maybe, yeah, there, I definitely, there was a definite generation, like the Windrush generation and around that, the African and Caribbeans that came over possibly would buy up stuff. I, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking very, very anecdotally informed. Mm -hmm. But we have the situation, we didn't have redlining and stuff like that in the U.K., but we definitely have, you know, you can't get loans. Home ownership is not big in, in the communities now. A lot of generations have lost their homes to being bought out, to redevelopment, to things like that, and not being able to maintain because of the the, the, the economic um, disparity that we suffer as black folks. So it's, it's, it's in a different way, but in the same way, we still lack. We're not on the property market and we're lowest on the rung when it comes to home ownership, definitely. It's not a thing um, in the UK. The only thing we have, maybe the UK provides more, you know, government housing and support like that, so that, but not... I don't think we're in a better position or even marginally when it comes to home ownership in the UK. But that is something I'd love to. Um, yeah, no, I'll send you the paper because it definitely outlines it by class and race. And we're talking about medium, right? So I, I think also we, we can't just think about our generation. It is about the parents generation and what will happen in terms of inheriting wealth because that's something that's going to happen in the u.s over the next 20 years is the biggest wealth transfer in the history of the world and it's not for black people and that's what and so the, it, you know it just makes me question like then when we have these depictions where instead of black people saying okay this is a policy issue this isn't because you know we don't work hard or we don't want it uh we could focus our energy on that instead they still can believe in the american dream if they think shows like Bel Air are real, right? But like I said, I'm I'm of two minds of it because I do I love soap operas so much. Um, and, and it, but you know I also hate reboots. And so I'm my initial question too is like why not just create a new sh show? Show. I, I've I've had this discussion too because people are like why did the, just leave it alone? And I'm very much of leave the reboots alone. But I just think this particular way of doing it is very interesting. I think it's clever. I think they've done enough where 
Will Smith can maintain his legacy as the com with the comedy series and not have that in competition with the new comedy series. The drama version takes you away. And I think the further down it goes, if it hopefully gets more seasons, it will evolve away from that and you can see it as its own thing. Um, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm a little bit in love with it. But even as you're speaking about the shows of afterwards, it's this thing with aspirational shows that we've got from Insecure to Harlem now to, um, there's a new one set in a vineyard. I can't remember what it's called. I think it's an own network. No, it's, it's Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. Yeah. So the, those, there's some new products, projects coming up that it's showing the middle class black. Um, we don't have that luxury in the UK. And so even with when I do the stuff with the British Blacklist, showcasing the work that we're doing, we're to have the abundance of shows that are actually on now in from the America that we were seeing with black cast and black storylines, we're not getting that. We still haven't got that yet. We're not there yet at all. It's interesting. Our biggest export at the moment is Top Boy. And then it was a small island series, but we don't have a show that depicts anything else at the moment. Right. So you're saying like a British version of the Cosby show, perhaps. perhaps. Of, of the Cosby show, of Insecure, of Harlem of um atlanta we have nothing oh, I, mean I do like atlanta oh that's genius <laughs> i do like atlanta but that's but genius. i also think atlanta even though i think they do lots of fun things and they have fantasy in there i think we could certainly argue that's a much more realistic portrayal of black i mean the you know his i've not seen in a long time but you know his um his partner's a teacher very realistic even though of course there's also an issue with black teachers but that's another story but there's things too where you have people who have regular jobs but don't and that's what that really the issue i'm talking about it's not so much their jobs because yeah you can have black professionals but they don't live like millionaires and that yeah and that's mm. and that's the um that's the um also hides the reality of if you are you know if you are a black professional you're swimming in student loan debt and and that's something and i think that also contributes to the numbers of why black British professionals would have more wealth because you don't have the same levels of student loan debt. Student loan debt. No, you don't have the same levels of student loan debt. Uh, it's creeping up. We're, it's creeping it's up. Not, but the it's US not six, is, it's we're like talking, in the hundreds yeah, of exactly. thousands. We're talking $100,000. It's not okay, the okay, same. Not right, yeah, and that's, yeah, yeah. that's what it's, I'm talking it's about. It's $100,000. That's where we're heading, though. But you're not there yeah. yet. So, and, and hopefully you won't be. Hopefully you will fight and uh, get that free education back. Fingers crossed. <laughs> we, can, we can only hope been an incremental sort of slippery I, slope there we, yeah. you know people forgot that it used to be free we used to get grants yeah i think it's also in relative in, rel in uh in relation to uh, what's the word uh, what's what i'm trying to say it's all relative to your to your situation because in the uk we everyone be like no it's a struggle it's a struggle out here i'm still paying off my student debts i don't know when my daughter now has got student debt and it's just like we, we, the reality of the money that we will make like now they're talking about us paying into our 40s and 60s or whatever, whatever, and going into our pension, drawing out student loan. It's a, it, it's coming out. We're, we're paying debt still. And I think it's just in relative, relative to what the careers that we have. We're not many white collar black professionals. There's not a lot of people. A lot of us are blue collar working class. And also, Sakura, don't forget the wages are lower. You yeah. know, when we, we both of us have chats about um, scales of wages for, yeah. for me, I mean, six figures is is enormous, whereas it's kind of that's that's a good wage in the U.S. Here, well, it's like the one well, percent. Well, but see, but that's what yeah. I mean. It it really depends where you're talking about because I'm in California and the Bay Area, yeah. so I'm in a very expensive place. It and you know most black people don't live in California. Most black people live in the South 
east, right? The south and southeast. So wages are lower there. So me specifically, like my circumstances are a bit different and um, yeah, and unique. I don't think I in any way, like my salary in any way represents um, like your average black salary, not, not, by a, not by a long stretch. We have smaller, cause, and remember the UK is an island, a small, much smaller island than to America compared to America. But there's places of affluence where you're not, it's, it's, it's going to be very few and far between that you have black people. And it would be like Bel-Air where you'd have one, possibly one rich black person <laughs> living in a yeah. world full of white people that is like the affluent areas like the central london's the, the, the zones that we have like zone one areas or you know those type of yeah rich places you Sorry. just not gonna have black people living there but yes but you know by wealth i don't mean wealthy right like wealth is you know any asset you have um and it makes I think in our society, in American society, it makes a huge difference because everything is privatized. And like you said, that's the, the one of the bigger differences is having a welfare state, which, you know, of course, we know it is eroding, <laughs> working hard to do that. Yet it's still much better than you have in the U.S. Like I remember when my mom first uh, lost her job and this must have been in 2014. And I was telling someone because I was in London at that time and I was explaining to someone that you know, after six months, my mom would be cut off and they couldn't understand. They're like, but what do you mean? I was like, well, that means the money stops. <laughs> like, you don't get any money. But there's like, but what are people supposed to do? I'm like, they don't care what people do. <laughs> no, that's not how things work here. But yeah, these yeah. are all political decisions, right? Because we saw what happened during the um, the uh, pandemic and which, you know, speaks to another issue because in the U.S., black people live in a constant recession. So we're always in a recession that never changes from year to year. So there is. Um, yeah, there is that added issue as well. But I mean, I, I mean, but I only look at this stuff because that was the topic for my research. So I am interested in black professionals <laughs> and black professional groups and their wealth levels. Um, and their numbers as well, because they're not, you know, super under, <laughs> super underrepresented. But um, I think there is, you know, certainly patterns you can see about where they live and their occupations and contract versus permanent. Yeah. So that was that was your take on. <laughs> well, the yeah. Right, I've got a really boring question compared to the rest of that discussion. Where is it shown? Now TV. Okay, so you can watch. We you can watch Bel Air on Now TV in the UK. Okay, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for that recommendation. No problem. So, uh, before we move on to Crooklyn, I just wanted to know a little bit more about. Uh, we touched on some things that you do with British Blacklist, but um, I wanted to ask a couple of questions. One was how uh, it was set up, and the second was just what you're working on at the moment. Um, so I was working at the BBC, um, I had been for many years, and um, as a black creative working in an organisation that is media for sure, but it's not, it doesn't have black culture at its heart, which is fine, but it at, because of that, and as a result, because I'm quite, I'm very black in my blackness and what I'm into, my culture and my entertainment and what I love, I always kind of was looking outside thinking, what else could I do? So I was always working on you know, blogs and things like that, just trying to contribute to the culture in some sort of way. And as I was doing that in researching and trying to find information, I felt like there wasn't enough information about what exactly um, we were doing as black creatives uh, in, in the world. And my first initial thought was to just document every black film ever made because I felt like ownership of our stories wasn't clear. I would go to possibly, we used to have a store called HMV, 
um, or you know anywhere that sold DVDs and stuff like that, I um, would be looking for something that I found popular. Maybe like a, a definitely not coming to America. But for example, if I'm looking for coming to America in a mainstream store, and then they might say, "Oh, it's been deleted." It kind of triggered me to think, like, why? Who owns our stories? And I didn't necessarily understand. I knew about distribution and you know who produced it and stuff like that, but not intrinsically. So I was a bit like, well, then how? If I love this kind of in our world really popular black classic and then it gets deleted you know what that means that story has gone forever um so then it started me on a journey that went down the rabbit hole and i thought let me document every black film ever made and i, so I started to collate that information because i don't know what i was going to do but i just thought i'm going to get every black film ever made and just have just some information about who owns it where it's where you can buy it and if it's deleted, is there any way to get it? Back? Just things like that, just for my information at first. When you, you say every um, black film ever made from the UK or no, just the world? world. Wow, okay. Because like I said, growing up in, in my time, most of our entertainment, our culture was fed by African-American stories. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when there, was the, when there was the black 90s film renaissance, we had Love Jones and Poetic Justice and Jason's yeah. Lyric, those type of films. This was and House Party. My God, that's one of my favorite films. <laughs> this is what we were consuming, and then you know I'd go to H and V, maybe wanting to buy it, and then someone says it's deleted, and I'm like, what the hell? So that was my thought, thought process, and I thought, well, okay, if I start with America, then I'm going to need to go around the world. What African films? What you know? What other Brazilian films? And then when I got to, I started to document what I could find, and then I got to the UK, and it was disgusting. There was like ten, a listing of ten films at that point or something like that. I think there was an article on the BFI listings in black films. And I was like, this is ridiculous. So then I thought, let me hone in on the UK. And then when I started to hone in on the UK and look at the characters and how we, how I document this, it just opened up this other world where I thought, you know what, I need to look at the people and the product. Look, and I used, obviously, I always used IMDB as a reference point for anything else I was looking into. And that's just how it all kind of came together. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do a UK version of IMDB for black creatives. Um, and that was kind of how it was born, like from maybe I was thinking about it from 2010 to 2011. And then I launched it in 2012 as a database and then an editorial platform around it where I do news reviews and interviews on the people that um, we I, I showcased on the database. Thank you. And yeah, my second question was, what are you currently working on? What does what does it what does the um, your, your output look like? Day to day content is just literally just documenting everything that's going on. Primar we do primarily UK black creators but we also have the diaspora because it's just by nature you know we'll you know recently spoke to Kyla Pratt for the Proud Family reboot though we'll speak to everybody but primarily UK black creators just making sure that everybody knows that they're doing stuff in 2014 roughly around then I realized that I was I didn't have the resources to maintain the database so I took it down and did some research and now working on re um, bringing it back so that's going to launch very soon anytime soon and um, also produce a TBB Talks podcast. We speak to, um, again, talent from all walks of life about their about what they do, just generally interview them. Yeah, I think that's all. And, you know, I have a podcast called Your Aunties Could Never, and that's where I get a chance to just be myself with some of my friends and celebrate the auntie, because I think the aunties, especially in the Black community, mm -hmm. I mean, in all, I guess in all communities, but speaking from my perspective, the aunties are a very important person in the family structure. And um, I pulled together my friends who are all aunties who have all served a really important purpose in our nieces and nephews' lives mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Specifically for myself on a personal story, I lost my sister about eight years ago and her children are like my babies. And just even stepping in when she wasn't well 
and being like a mother figure for them while she, my sister was going for trouble before her um, untimely demise, that um, was something that was a trigger. Like, yeah, there's 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 an importance on the auntie, and there's not really much talk around the auntie. Well, there will have there's, there's a lot more now, but there's not really much focus on the auntie. So that's what I thought. And what does the auntie look like in twenty in the twenty twenties? Like, you know, we're young, we're hip, <laughs> we're <laughs> not like the auntie of, of of yore that was just a bit maybe a bit more stuffy. I don't know. So yeah. So that would produce aunties could never and I think and I'm also co-host of the circle another kind of industry podcast that I um, co-created with a guy called Leon Leon Main and again we just speak to industry um, talent about their craft and really hone in on that fantastic no I didn't know about the circle brilliant well we'll add um, links to all of these in the blurb so moving on to our uh, chosen well your chosen film which is um, Spike Lee's Crooklyn Yay. I don't know if we need a bit of a, of a rough synopsis uh, for those of you who've... Well, we'll go through spoilers, so presumably everyone who's listening oh. will have watched it. Um, so, Cricklin is Spike Lee's uh, semi-autobiographical film. It's set mm-hmm. in 1973, Brooklyn, and it tells the story of the Carmichael family. So it's made up of uh, schoolteacher mum, Carolyn, her struggling jazz musician husband, Woody, and their five kids, four boys... And one girl, Troy, who is entering adolescence, and the film is really kind of focused more on her as a character than um, than the brothers, and we'll probably discuss that as well. Um, so Spike Lee wrote the film with his siblings, and it recalls their their own childhood in Brooklyn, and the early death of their their own mother. So again, spoiler alert: if you've not watched it, we're going to be discussing uh, key plot points. So do. Watch it before listening. Akira, why did you pick Crooklyn in particular? On this, on demand, because I always say my favourite films are Crooklyn, House Party, Devil Wears Prada, Stand By Me, Lost Boys. And I know there's one I'm missing, and possibly Love and Basketball. So, mm. and oh God, and Colour Purple. See, this is what happens. I, I read off a bunch of films that have really been impactful in my life. I might have watched a thousand times over that have just got a special place in my heart. And Crooklyn, I guess it's because we don't get... To, I guess the others maybe have had conversations about them, maybe celebrations and screenings. And I'm not sure how many times Crooklyn gets a rescreen and a conversation with the cast and how important that film is and how it highlights that. Even though when I did my research, there are quite a lot of black coming of age films for girls, but then maybe it's the narratives are not quite sweet enough for me. And Crooklyn is just a very cute film. And I love Troy, the, the lead character. I just love her perspective and her the way the film was told through her eyes and it's just a very simple film but I just loved it so I just love it I love it perhaps this goes some way to explain why it's not replayed as often or taken as seriously as some of his other films perhaps is that it before I watched it I saw that it was very much presented perhaps to maybe a more generally white audience as a comedy and I didn't I didn't think it was a comedy um, and I think it kind of glossed over the, the more serious aspects of the film to sell it to a wider audience, I assume. Um, so I, was, I wondered what you made of that. I, I think that's the first time I've heard that. I'm not, wow, I didn't, I, to be sold as a comedy, bizarre. I think it sits in line with this very Spike Lee mm-hmm. in its storytelling. It's visually Spike Lee. It's one of his, you know, he's, he has all the kind of tropes of Spike Lee, of a Spike Lee joint. Um, I'm 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 a little bit stumped with that perspective because I I hadn't even thought that that's what had happened to it, and 
for it to be presented possibly to do you mean like it, the way it was marketed in general yeah i um well i mean i i just reading up on reviews and and just taglines um i saw quite a lot of references to its comedic content and then i read an article um by bell hooks who wrote about the film who actually and i quote what she says is that uh at the time, billboards tell consumers the smart choice is Spike Lee's hilarious crooklid, suggesting that the film is a comedy. The seriousness of the subject matter must be downplayed, denied. Um, and she's basically suggesting that that's... Uh, actually, she she starts off that paragraph with, um, I basically quoting this, uh, to introduce it to consumers who do not take black life seriously, advertisements give little indication of its content. I mean, I expected it to be a funny film <laughs> it and there are some funny quips and dialogues but it's fundamentally uh there's a lot of seriousness and a lot of tragedy in it I, I'm, I'm stumped i haven't i've just kept it as a film that because i think as you i sometimes i avoid that commentary about stuff because you can get think piece think piece or thought piece to death with um people's opinions about something you just love and just want to hold dear so i've not done that kind of insight look into what the backstory of it apart from the general stuff i did not know that it, people thought it was a comedy and it was marketed as a comedy but that's truly misleading and I think very disrespectful for what it was for what it, the film that it is yeah okay you know actually that's kind of interesting because I think I did really think about it in that way like a feel-good yeah comedy honestly because we watch this all the time and we weren't watching it to have a serious film I mean there were there were important parts in it but I don't know it's kind of like uh Annie I mean, there were serious parts in that, you know, she almost got murdered. Um, they were actually orphans, right? You had this capitalist who was highly exploitative during the Depression, but it's still, you know what I mean? And that's how I see this film, because to me, like, that's a, a lot of it is about, especially uh, I thought what he did well, which is difficult. And I think we do forget that as adults, what it's like to be kids. And it really pulled you in. Mm -hmm and made you feel like you were seeing things through the eyes of she and her brothers. But yeah, I just, I just thought like, yeah, they, they worked hard to make it funny and lighthearted. Like even the, even the part about the people trying to steal their money, they, they try to make that funny because he ends up breaking his shoe and the kids run off and it's still like, I think they work hard to see as children do, you don't see the real danger in things. Yeah, you brought me back down to earth because I was a bit like, and I'm, I'm very defensive about it. So I'm sort of, no, it's a serious film. But yes, all of those things that you said, but it's just, it, but the comedy was live comedy rather than this is a comedy. Yeah, as you in it's not a screwball. It's not um, yes. you know, out loud. <laughs> yeah, it's really marketed as a comedy, I think takes you or sets you off on a different path. Then, it's, then it becomes very serious and not funny. Because I, I think as people would say, life is funny. So even if it's serious moments, you find humour, you know, you can find humour at a funeral and stuff like that. Um but I think that's what it, it, it draws on, that kind of real life comedy rather than actual ha-ha, we're going to force this laugh in here. But yeah, you know, everything you said is absolutely right. It, it just capturing life through the children's eyes and the bemusement and the wonderment of like these things and how, yeah, they don't take things seriously. Um, you know, like stealing, like stealing from the corner shop. I mean, that was a, a rite of passage when I was young. <laughs> You'd have to find a way to steal from the corner shop. and. I remember one of my good friends was very, very straight laced and she would never steal. And I think I I, I kind of, I think I apologize because I, I was stealing chewing gum or something stupid and she put something in her pocket and please guys don't arrest me after this podcast. <laughs> um, 
I, you know, I was like, oh God, the influence of children and your best friend wanting to be like your best friend. So you're going to risk it all just to be like your best friend. It's just so relatable, relatable. I don't know uh, if that this, was my rite of passage. Yeah. You sound like a city girl. Abla, <laughs> was, was that your thing? <laughs> Where did you grow up? <laughs> I grew up in, just in South, South London. No, um, oh, did you? Oh, whereabouts? Um, it was like on the border of Tooting Junction and Mitcham. So Collier's Wood, it was oh, called. Right. So yeah, a little bit of a stealer. <laughs> just, but that was kids. <laughs> so girl, where did you go? Where did you grow up? I've just realized I always assumed you'd grown up in the Bay Area. I did. But I grew up in a small town. It was, well, the Bay Area is a region, so no. <laughs> San Francisco. <laughs> so it's a collection of small cities, and I'm in the East Bay from a small. What'd you say? So, like, I don't get it. I don't get the, I know some states and understand, but, you know, I'd make so much assumptions. <laughs> Which is fine. And there's nothing wrong with that because you don't have to, you know, because frankly, that, and, and not, you know, like, I would never do that. One of these people who's so precious and expect you to know, like, if that didn't affect your day to day life, how would you know? And frankly, why would you even look that up? Like, why would, you know what I mean? But I'm teasing Avila a bit because I've known her for years. So she should know that the Bay Area is in a city. And I, anyway. No, no, I know. I, I was, I, I was thinking more specifically of san francisco no i've never lived in san francisco i'm from a s town called fremont nothing's there it's just a very boring suburb oh <laughs> i've heard <laughs> how i that is shocking do you know someone who's in tech maybe you know somebody in tech no no no, no. is um is there only one place in america called fremont no or is that okay cool maybe so i don't know if it's that but, but we're in silicon valley so if you no i don't know anybody it could be from a book or something because I, like i said there's a lot of my my history growing up was african-american history so oh, all the oh. stories and stuff like that so it might have passed through it might have been something mentioned in a book oh, okay i was gonna say the kite runner i know it was in that book but that was about an afghani american family so that was yeah. a black family yeah I don't... in one of my books uh gosh six out seven i think by the author jeff Mowry, but i think that was set in chicago i can't even i'm gonna mess it up i'm not gonna say it but there's just, there's so many, anyway, I could go on for days and just bore you with all the confusion about America and my fascination with it. <laughs> yeah. There's different, there's different cities that are known for, you know, the huge disparities across a, a short bridge. So it's like Oakland is across the bridge from San Francisco. That's it. Oakland. Yes. You would know <laughs> Oakland, home of the Black Panthers, amongst other things. Yeah. <laughs> and did MC Hammer film, Please Hammer Don't Hurt Them there? <laughs> I'm going to really? say, well, you know, he moved to my town and he was from Oakland, though. So he was from Oakland. Then he moved to my city, but in the hills. He lived in the hills. And actually, I have a story about that. That's so upsetting. It's still traumatic to talk about and no one really cares anymore, but I'm going to tell it. So what happened was his sister, her son went to my aunt's daycare and my aunt was friends with their family. And so his wife hosted a baby shower in the mansion. So, of course, I wanted to go because the closest everyone I knew who had gotten to the mansion was he had shot a uh, music video there and people went up for that. But, you know, you didn't get to go inside. You just got to, you know, hang out outside. So, anyway, I thought I was going. But, no, my mom was like, no, you're too young to go. Oh, a no. baby <laughs> shower is not – there will be strippers there. Why? Why can't I go? <laughs> and she said, no. She said, no, you're too young to go to a baby shower. And I couldn't believe it. I think I was just so shocked. Like, is she really doing this? And what made it worse was when they got, my mom and my sister came back home. Oh, you know.
know there were kids there. Everybody, and they just and I said, why would you need to tell me that? You could have just pretended. <laughs> Clearly, never forgiven them. No, they're they're horrible. I was such an MC Hammer fan as well. Like, no way, I would have been livid. Oh, I was at the time. I'm telling the story in a much calmer way and and you know how it was too our, our behavior telling our the stories behind our parents back was different in front of their face it was like why then once they left i hate her <laughs> you never get that chance again what's he up to now these days oh he invested in dot com stuff so he has money he's got back yeah he, he has money from investing in tech but i believe his job is a minister that's his day job what? but i don't think that's how he makes his money it's from the investment <laughs> so many revelations my my mc hammer story is that re, maybe two maybe, maybe three years ago whenever whenever they did the adams family reboot and i was saying that they should have i think i tweeted that they should have um had the you know he did the adams family rap for yeah they know, do what they want to do say what they want to say live how they want to live play how they want to play yeah i remember that yeah that was a tune um, I tweeted and I added him and he followed me and he retweeted it. No. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, sorry, this is ridiculous. But yes, I'm a brain ass woman, but I was very gassed. Very <laughs> now, who doesn't like him? And he's a hero, you know, just thinking about it. But you, if, if anything, it's also an example of the difference between wealth and money and what he tried to do, right? Because his solution was everybody gets a job and we saw where that got him. It just wasn't just possible. Yeah. But it just shows, I think, the mentality of people where if I make it, I'm not going to make it alone. We all have to get our come up. Really? But there wasn't enough for everyone to have their come up because records don't pay artists like that. But his heart was in the right place. Absolutely. And I, I don't think no he's idea. the only one. Oh, oh, get it together, Avla. Yes, yes. And even his whole story, selling <laughs> tapes out of his trunk. I mean, he was a hero. Yeah, yeah he definitely yeah. was. Definitely. There you go. Redeemed MC Hammer. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what a segue that was um yeah. <laughs> i don't even know okay. how we got onto that was it but in it was the bay of... area sorry the, the bay area. area no but that's ah, yeah. that's the whole the whole the whole point of this podcast it allows for this kind of discussion <laughs> going back to the film i had um i wanted to ask you about what you thought of troy's character i guess how her I don't want to say her plight because it's it Im implies it's somewhat negative. But and again, and this is going to make me sound like a complete sort of show off uh, because I'm going to refer back to that uh, Bell Hooks article. But it, it really articulated quite well things that I had noticed about the film. So she's quite scathing about his depiction of women, of um, yeah. both uh, Carolyn's, uh, well, Carolyn and uh, what happens to Troy where Troy is basically made to kind of take on that adult yeah. responsibility for the whole family. I don't know how much of it is uh, true to what happened to them as a family. She's kind of giving up her adolescence and a childhood and she has to become the adult to look after the rest of the family. What do you make of that? I Did mean, you find that problematic in any way? Or What I accepted was that it's a part of life. It, mm. It's what happens. So... And, and I say that very, you know, uh, uh, with a broad paintbrush, it's what happens with, and as I was talking from a black girl, black woman's perspective, being the matriarch at a very early age is par for the course in a lot of our households. And whether you're caring for a whole bunch of your siblings and even maybe a parent or parents, it's also if you're, because, you know, again, anecdotally, I grew up 
um, mostly as a single child, single single child, even though I had um, siblings in other family, you know, in other households and stuff like that. So that kind of maturity that's that was imposed on me at a very early age is something that was quite normal. And I know lots of other of my friends who grew up in a similar way that they had to get mature quite quick, quickly because for their survival. So I got I, that's why I think I love Troy so much mm-hmm. because her. And that kind of wanting, having that innocent, those innocent moments, those kiddie moments, but yet, you know, when, she, you know, when the door shuts behind her, then she's got to take on the mummy role. And the, 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 the responsibility that she has, it, it was, it's relatable. So I don't know if I can push against it because it was relatable. If it was dishonest, then I would have more of a problem with it. And yeah, Spike has, you know, Uncle Spike has got some questionable perspectives when it comes to some women's female depictions in his films, but I... Uh, and if it's, we don't, I don't know how much of that is also I don't know how much of that is that was a Joy yeah. Lee's experience. So I can't take that away from them. But yeah, um, but he's depicting a reality, basically. Yeah, and I, it's not. It wasn't a lie. But this is the thing. I've not read the Bell Hooks article, so I I can't speak to her analysis in total. But I think there was also pressure put on the oldest brother, right? Like it was said more than once, like you're the oldest and you're not behaving like the oldest. So I think also if we're looking at that specific family dynamic, there were expectations that he didn't meet, even at the end, right? When the closing scenes, when they're leaving the funeral, that's what the dad's telling him. You're the oldest. You got to start taking care of the rest of them. So I think it's in that specific family, there's different expectations for different children's abilities. And when children don't step up, you have to do more, but they were on him because Mm -hmm. Everyone knows, well, I shouldn't say everyone knows. My common sense is people follow the oldest, which is why you're hardest on them because the kids are going to do what they do. So it seemed just like Troy Mm -hmm. and being the only girl as well. I think she and her mom had a special relationship. And so her mom did ask her to do chores, but you know, it's, I mean, going to the store that later she did her brother's hair, but I think that was certainly a thing where, you know, maybe she cared more than he did. <laughs> I'm not sure if that was her having to do all the things the mom did. And and she wanted to step up and do that too, right? So when her mom was in the hospital, she's like, oh, you know, I'll help you. I'll do more. But I think that was her mother's, you know, her mom woke all of them up. Let's mm-hmm. not forget that. When she told them to clean up, they didn't. She got all of them up, not just Troy. So I think, yeah. I don't, I don't know if it's fair to say that they were making her be a mom, yeah. but I do think well, yeah. responsibilities can be gendered in families. That's true. And I, but I'm not sure if that's totally a bad thing. Like it's a bad thing when she has to drop out of school and <laughs> take care of everybody, but it's not necessarily a bad thing if everyone also has responsibility for maintaining the household, but just different responsibilities based on their mm-hmm. age and uh, ability. So, um, yeah. That's something that speaks to something that's a little bit different when you, because, you know, you have the very, I guess if you're going to use the word sexist families where the boys don't have to do a damn thing and everything's mm-hmm. on the girls in the family. And I definitely have comments. Yeah, we've seen that. Yeah. So, I, and I think, as, as you rightly pointed out, that the mum didn't suffer any fools. Everyone had to kind of chip in in their, in their way of their capabilities. And maybe, you know, she had, I guess, maybe Troy had some, you know, you're a, you are a woman, you are possibly going to be a wife and a mother. So these are the extra things you need to know. I wasn't mad at that life those life lessons I, I don't think I was mad at that I empathized and felt sorry at times but yeah. you know yeah. when she went to save her cousin and that escapism but and I think there's also a belief and I'm not saying it's a right one I think there's also a belief that girls are more mature and so you know her mom didn't make her cook dinner she just had her go to the store to get the groceries so that wasn't that hard of a chore she didn't know she'd get mugged <laughs> Well, it's not. And that, that's a common chore for parents to give their kids is to go to the store and get dinner, you know, get the things and come back. 
literally. Mum used to send me a nice stuff. Me and my brother used to go when my brother was living with us. And then I remember having to drag home shopping and by myself. And it was just, it just that's what I'm saying. I think I find it hard. Maybe this is not great to be pretty because I'm so biased. But the film is so relatable that I, I, I understand. It wasn't a lie to me. It, I didn't see fabrication. I saw a slice of life that I could understand. I mean, it's interesting because um, it seems to speak to you and to quite a lot of people, despite it being very much about a family in Brooklyn in those circumstances. I mean, you said it was one of those films that you that had a massive impact on you and you watched it and watched it again. So what was it really about the film that that caused you to feel that? You know, first of all, Spike Lee fan, of course, and then my fascination with African-American life and culture and then so maybe envisioning myself as a and the, uh, Troy was me it's like it's me she's me and I said I don't I haven't had that I don't have that similar narrative mm-hmm. to how she grew up you know but it's just something maybe through maybe how I envisioned myself growing up if I grew up in New York you know in Brooklyn I, I it's it's a dr- it was a dream it was a fantasy before I got to America um I think I first went to America in, in 99 possibly um I had this fantasy of what America would be like and what it'd be like to to grow up, to, to what it would be like to grow up as a little black girl in New York. And so I think that's what it, it just spoke to me in that way. And that's why I related. But also because, like I said, from books, I was an avid book reader. A lot of my books were from African-American writers. A lot of the history and stuff that I know about America is through the eyes of these um, uh, black American fictional writers. And then through the content that we got in the UK from America. So I've got a very close relationship, even even before I even got to go to America. I felt like I knew things that, even though I've definitely confused myself with the Bay Area, but I know enough to know there's there are these areas and these places and this culture of growing up. And I think Spike Lee, especially, I don't know uh, to true Americans what, whether that's accurate, but for me, he gave us that slice, that insight in a very, my kind of way. So I think that's why it resonated. Mm. Or do you feel oh. like, like, um, or I, I think it, through f- fiction, for example, do you feel like it, um, it gave a sort of glamorous idea of what uh, being black in America might be like compared to with being black in the UK, and that's why you wanted to go there instead? Or I wonder, I wonder about, I wonder about the glamorization. I'm not sure because a lot of the books are rooted in, you know, slave, the slave past and the racism and th- things like yeah. that. So there's a lot of struggle stories um, from that perspective. And then the, the, the joy of a family that coming up in, in amongst all of that and the survival of a family in amongst all of that and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to, there's so many books that I, I'm looking at that I just can't even pick one, but thing, you know, Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison, yeah. um, uh, there's, to, there's too many. Um, but, so, but, but, but I, and the thing is, I, I would struggle to read a book about, the UK because it was empty of something and I, that's because I think I grew up with a bias because everything I consumed was African-American or black American and also I'm you know hip-hop was my thing hip-hop and R&B like the Source magazine and Vibe magazine were my bibles the Source magazine specifically was my absolute bible um so there's so that the whole thing the whole package of being black American has been romanticized but I don't know if it's I don't know. I, 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 I've never been asked that before. I've never really sat down to unpack what my, what the thing was. But I think because we were, we were lacking a visualization of our culture. And so what we did was lean very heavily on black American culture. 
So, and though there was, there is, a, you know, in the UK from the 90s through to 2000s and so that, though we had hip hop and R&B, we had our own music, like jungle music, house and garage. Yeah. That, that, that had its own subset of culture. We had our culture and who we are, our slanguistics and stuff. That's very Caribbean, that was Caribbean influence. And now it's evolved into being Af- West African influence. Mm-hmm our linguistics, but for a long time we would, you know, I understand um, African-American linguistics because I, that's all I knew. So I don't know, I feel, you know, you guys are my cousins, like I feel that kind of, it's a, it's, it's a kinship. So this story it resonates with me as it possibly would with any black American young lady, you know what I mean? So. That's really it, interesting. It's the blackness that connects. That's what I like. It's a good black story. Oh, wow. Well, Sakura, what do you make of that given uh, your own specific research um so well yeah i mean i i don't think it reflected my own personal experience with family but i really enjoyed the film so growing up we watched it many many times and i think we just we liked all the characters we liked the mom and i didn't have any brothers so i just have a sister i mean i don't know i mean i do have a brother but it's with my dad's second wife but that's more of a cousin I don't mean that in a bad way, but you know, that's not really a brother. So yeah, so I didn't, so with that said, I just had a sister, but even then um, you just really like the way that they played together, the parents relationships. And I think, you know, there was a, and I can't remember the name of the comedian, but he has this bit where he's talking about how inappropriate adults were with him in terms of the, the things they told him about. So he gave an example about how his dad was complaining about his mom right saying what a horrible person she was and I think Mm -hmm. this film has elements of that like the dad get you know the daughter feeling like it's her job to tell her dad yeah you need to take mom out on a date that's what you need to do right and he's like (laughs) talking to her on the stoop and how they how the parents speak you know they argue it's true they're arguing differently in front of the kids but even then later they continue the argument in front of the kids upstairs and I think that level of inappropriateness that is so common in families I thought was very relatable um where he because the comedian said my dad treated me like a bartender and I do think parents treat their kids like that sometimes and it's not ever (laughs) captured no it's the truth because uh, my best friend and I were talking about that actually how our parents would complain in somewhat of a joking way but also in a way where they were puzzled like oh how did this happen about how we would speak about things that we didn't know about speak about adult things but it's like well look what you let us watch and look how you speak to us that's why we do it and they never got that so it's like they wanted you to maintain your place as a child, and yet they exposed you to very adult things. Like, for example, with Troy and food stamps, right? It's like, I want you to now act like an adult and not be embarrassed to use these food stamps and go to the store. And that's the kind of stuff they would do and not understand how that grew us up, like you were talking about before. It grows you up in a different way, which I think went completely unrecognized by adults. And I thought he captured that. And yeah, just the jokes was really funny. Also, they the part where she visits family in another part of the country. So I think a lot of black people have that experience because my dad, after my parents divorced, my dad moved to the East Coast. And when I would go out there, it was so different culturally. And when I would meet kids there, because my dad did send me to summer camp, they never met anybody from California, right? So they were very interested, like, oh, you're from California. Do you surf? Do you surf? And I'm like, no, <laughs> like that is no I don't even live near a beach no so there's there's lots of you know when the U.S. lots of people would assume things about your life if you live in California 
Um, and everyone does that, right? Like we have regional differences where people make assumptions if you live in New York or the South or the Midwest, right? So there's that kind of thing. Um, and just the very different landscape, the very different landscape, the very different place of life. And that was absolutely my experience um, going to different parts of the country. It just it felt so very different. The cultural attitudes were different, the mannerisms, the type of people. And especially at my dad's house, there were very much these black bougie people that I just didn't come in contact with regularly. Yeah, so there's lots of reasons to like the film and watching it again, because I've not watched it in years. So I'm actually glad that you picked it. And just, I forgot how good Delroy Linda was in that. We haven't even talked about his brilliance. And I mean, his the chemistry between him and Alfred Woodard anyway. Yeah. But just, yeah. And maybe there's a little bit of, you know, longing for a black father, you know, that when you get a good black father, even though he had his... His, his flaws, he tried and he was vulnerable. And he was a family man. That was what's most important. He was a family man. The fact is though, that he was an artist and it was a middle age thing. Like, when's it gonna be my turn to do what I really wanna do as opposed to doing things that's Would just he? putting money first. Yeah. And I thought that was something, and, and that's something I don't think you see very much this, um, well, not that I think they did, but it does remind me that you don't center black men characters in that way. So actually, yeah. you know what it reminds me of is the film. Um, what was the one? Uh, and it was it was based on a James Baldwin film. The one with Barry Jenkins film. I don't know who that is, but I'm not good with names. It was if Bill Street could talk. No, if Bill Street, right? Yes, and I loved the depiction of black fatherhood in fatherhood. That in yeah, that Coleman film. Domingo is the, is the actor and he's a special gem anyway as an actor. But yeah, he got that black father wonderful. Well, I mean, I think they all like they all had an aspect of black father. So the so the yeah the one who's the boyfriend, the the girl's father, his father, all three of them, um, and and that was the, my favorite line when her dad he was like, "But it's our children. Like, what wouldn't we do for our children?" And again, not the center of the film, but I like the depiction, and I think the depiction of him as a black father, where you know his children were absolutely first. He just. You know, he didn't want to do the pop music anymore, but mom was like, no, I don't want to teach. I don't want to teach high school, but I'm doing it. So <laughs> wish we could all relate to. Well, we're nearing uh, the end of our time. So any final thoughts that you'd like to share on the film? Either of you? I want more people to watch it and enjoy it and get, see what it is. I, and though I don't want a reboot of that film, I just would love to see. I just want to see more stories from, I, from the UK. We do. I, I could not find and I don't think I can name a coming of age from from a black British girl's perspective. I have and you would know. <laughs> I would know. If it existed, you would know about well, it. Well, you know what they say yes. though. If you don't, if you don't see the film, that means you have to make it. That old chestnut. I do have. I do have a script. I I huh? sent it to a friend who hacked it to death. But I need time. It's just about timing. Um, is you need to because you need to be in that frame. I I admire writers even for the worst films ever. I do admire people who've actually managed to do something because it is bloody hard. And would it take place in the 80s or 90s? It would take place in the 90s. It's actually oh. called Me Versus the 90s. If I say it out loud, it's going to happen. It's called Me Versus oh, the 90s. you committed now. <laughs> I've committed. I've said it a few times out loud. I'm a bit scared. But yeah, it's called Me Versus the 90s. Well, if there's ever a time to fundraise, it seems like this is the moment <laughs> to do it. I'm not... Look, look. I'm inspired by Spike Lee as well. So yeah, maybe I'll do a, a AK joint. <laughs> and it does, it does raise the question why he hasn't done more coming of age films. But I do like uh, coming of age stories. Yeah, me too. I, and I think that 
I wonder if it's because it's usually they're so personal to people that that's that one story that you tell because it's so and then how do you jump off of it if you to do more kind of thing yeah. the authenticity yeah. is coming away so especially if they're sending autobiographical can't say it autobiographical so yeah I don't know I wonder if it's because that I think the the writers who do it well that's what I don't think we can remember we can't remember that exact like we remember turning points but we don't remember that exact moment we became an adult and we didn't trust people the same way we didn't look at situations the same way and the good coming of age stories capture that in a way where you watch someone really uh transform i think that's why we like dirty dancing unless you don't like it in which case maybe not you but <laughs> i oh, love we've dirty had dance. that discussion before have we have, we? have you not do you don't yes, like it Apple? because like i've it not Apple? seen it what i've seen what is I, going i yeah, forgot that because i have seen clips of it and i've seen enough clips of it to make up the film so, no, and I've decided I don't want to watch them. It's not my favorite, but it's one of those films I can watch it whenever it's on. I can actually watch it. Through. I should, I should watch it. And um, that's just it, even it, though because I, I always resent when people <laughs> say, "Oh, you know, we can't relate to it because it's black." We relate to Dirty Dancing, and they're a rich white Jewish family. We still relate to it, and anyone can relate to that story because it was about that her making her own decisions, and more importantly, understanding that her parents were people with their own biases and prejudices before anything else, like losing that sort of love you have for your parents where you just think they're the best people in the world just like when we were younger how we thought our mother was the most beautiful person in the world and I can't tell you the exact moment that changed but at some point you start to see oh maybe there's people more beautiful no oh. honestly and it's that thing where oh look she's lovely but she's not the most beautiful huh? everyone knows about the most beautiful person in the world and in fact my mom's <laughs> the one who gave me that lecture she's just like um you'll never be the best at everything you'll anything you'll never be there's always someone better than you so please Peggy appreciates that sentiment. She told she she ingrained that sentiment. There's always someone better than you. So those are my last thoughts. I'd like to see more coming of age films. And yeah, same. Spike Lee didn't disappoint. No, not at all. And he ne- well, rarely does, to be honest, for me. But yeah, I, it's Crooklyn's special and Troy is me in some way. That's a great way to end this. That's lovely. Thank you so much for having joined us. Well, thank you for having me. Thank, thank you. you very much for listening, everyone.